For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. John Brown was the sacrificial lamb, the man who freely gave his life in accordance with God's will to free us all from the bondage of sin. John Brown was the long-bearded religious fanatic who commanded a suicide attack on a building that symbolized the power of the United States, killed 19 of his followers, and touched off a long and costly war. Who was John Brown, the 19th century version of Jesus Christ or of Osama bin Laden? The debate goes on marching today. We'll have the author of Confederates in the Attic, Tony Horowitz, who gives his take in Midnight Rising, John Brown and the Raid that Sparked the Civil War, with us today on Civil War Talk Radio. on Twitter at World Talk Radio. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you today, as usual, from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University here in Greenville, North Carolina. ECU is a constituent campus of the UNC, University of North Carolina system, but it doesn't speak for UNC Chapel Hill or the other schools. I don't speak for the history department or the state of North Carolina. Everybody speaks for himself on this show, me, the guests, everyone else. All legal disclaimers are thus taken care of. Well, it is a cloudy, overcast day, the kind of day I grew up with in Michigan here in North Carolina at the near the end of February 2013. We're in the ninth season now of Civil War Talk Radio, hard to believe, but continuing along nicely. It is uh, uh, a great cloudy day. I drive a, a car that I brought with me from Indiana some 10 years ago now, just about, that has the winter package uh, useful in the Midwest, including an alarm that goes off when the temperature dips below 40 degrees, a little snowflake lights up and it dings. And we always laughed about that up north because like 39 means 
okay, it's not t-shirt weather anymore, but but actually it's quite useful down here in North Carolina because when it does get below 40, the students break out the parkas, the uh, the woolly hats and gloves, except those who continue to wear shorts and flip-flops who just seem completely oblivious to, to any weather at all, and there are some of each outside today. But we're not here to talk about the weather. We're here to talk about impedimentsofwar.org, the Civil War talk radio website. If you're not familiar with it, then it is a mystery how you came to be listening to this at the moment. But always feel free to go back and take a look at that website, impedimentsofwar, all one word, .org, where you can find out who's going to be on the show, who's been on the show, get links to the old shows, You'll find out there that uh, we have upcoming, uh, let's look at the calendar and see who's who's upcoming. Today, it's the 22nd of February. Next week, Doug Batson will talk to us about Confederate General D.H. Hill. Then, probably we'll, we'll do something on March 8th. Not yet sure what it's going to be. Uh, definitely, then we'll have a, a three-show hiatus uh, through... Uh, the rest of March, as it will be spring break, and then a local history conference here on the 300th anniversary of the Tuscarora War, 1713, that our department is participating in, is hosting, so I'll, I'll be booked that day. And then we get to March 29th, it's Good Friday, and the, the university shuts down at noon, so I won't be able to do the show from here. I could do it from home, I suppose, but I'll I'll, I'll be doing other things at that point. Uh, feel free, as always, to contribute to Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, there are two ways to contribute. One is to go to the impedimentsofwar.org uh, Facebook page and press the like button. If you like the page, that will cost you nothing and accomplish nothing except boost the number of people who like us, which last week was hovering just below 200 and is now above 200 so we're we're not reaching quite the 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 New York Times bestseller status of Facebook pages but uh, it's good to see how we can move the needle occasionally the other way is to press the PayPal donate button and send $25 to Civil War Talk Radio you will not get a tax deduction you will only get the warm feeling of knowing you have helped me buy things that I need to do the show or to entertain myself when not doing the show. Uh, as I said, it's not a charity, no tax deductibility about it. But I'll share with you before we get started today something that I have actually thought of buying. And uh, uh, it, it was a list of DVDs of Civil War sources and I should give the name, but that would be a free ad, and I don't remember it offhand. Uh, but I got an email, and one of them was for a, a DVD collection of, uh, of sources reproduced dealing with the, the Battle of Stones River. So most of them dealt with the Army, what was then called 14th Army Corps, later the Army of the Cumberland, but before that known as the Army of the Ohio. And when I researched that army, some... 15 years ago, uh, pre-internet era, 
I traveled widely for weeks throughout the Midwest, finding copies of obscure regimental histories and different county historical societies, and ended up with a list of some dozens of these these old out-of-print books where I was probably the only person uh, in the United States at that time who had read all of these books about the Army of the Ohio. Now, on this DVD, I find I can buy... Uh, uh, copies of them, online copies, virtual copies, of all of these books for one price of $50. So what took weeks and weeks of research and travel now can be done with the push of a button. It's really a remarkable new world of research we live in. It doesn't mean that uh, books are necessarily any better, but they leave more time to do other things, uh, like look at YouTube videos or whatever one does when not doing the research that we ought to be doing. Anyway, your donation. Send me $25, and I'll buy one of these DVDs and report back to you on, on what's in it. Um, and if you do, I'll send you a copy of All for the Regiment, uh, and you can read my take on the Army of the Ohio. Or did Lincoln own slaves and read about that? Always happy to share either of those with anyone who can contribute to Civil War Talk Radio. Well, enough business. Let's get to the fun part of what we do here, which is talk about the 19th century, the Civil War era, uh, with our guest today, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner. We don't have too many on, but we had Mark Neely on earlier this year, so actually we're doing very well this year. Uh, he is Tony Horwitz, uh, known to everyone listening to this show as the author of Confederates in the Attic, Dispatches from the Unfinished Civil War, a book from 1998. But more recently, and the subject of our conversation today, uh, Midnight Rising, John Brown and the, the raid that sparked the Civil War. That's what we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Uh, Mr. Horwitz, are you here? Thanks for having me. Thank you for being on. Uh, uh, it, it was a, a great pleasure to be able to get in touch with you through uh, through email, and I appreciated your, your prompt replies. Um I have all kinds of questions to ask you. Uh, I often ask people about their background, their interest in history. But I'm going to start by cutting right to the chase and ask a question that every Civil War talk radio listener, well, I'll say 90% of us, uh, it, would want to ask, which is how does one convince one's spouse to get interested in the Civil War and then write a best-selling book about it? Uh, well, that was tricky, and it took me a while. Uh, my wife, Geraldine Brooks, is from Australia, and uh, perhaps partly for that reason doesn't have the um, uh, the automatic interest that many Americans uh, have in the Civil War. For many years, we lived in Virginia, not far from battlefields, and I would drag her every weekend and every chance I had to uh, uh you know, a Civil War site, and she came to uh, call me a Civil War bore, uh, but somehow over time it sunk in, and she ended up writing a novel called March uh, about the Civil War, um, and uh, ended up sort of coming back to me and saying, all those books you have, could I take a look at them? And remember when we went out to Ball's Bluff, can we uh, go there again and uh, tell me a bit more about the battle? So, you know, you just have to keep trying. Well, that that uh, it's a dream come true for for many of us, and I credit my wife with a a good interest in historical things. But that uh, 
but she says she leaves that to me for the most part. Uh, March, for the few listeners who haven't read it, uh, tells the story of the men from the, the famous novel Little Women. Uh, what were the men doing? What was Mr. March doing? And turns out he's uh, serving in the Army of the Potomac. And it's uh, a fascinating novel. It was chosen as one of the books uh, to be read with the uh, the American Library Association's uh, Let's Talk About It grant program last year where uh, uh, libraries across the country held uh, discussion groups on different Civil War topics. And that was the book one week. And I'll admit I probably wouldn't have read it had I not been involved in that. Uh, I, I tend not to read fiction. But it's a, a, a brilliant combination of uh, uh, or, or imaginative evocation of the Civil War era, I should put it that way. And it got me to read Little Women, which I'd never read, yeah. and that was a, a treat. Right. Well, let, let's talk about your your background for, for readers who don't know. Um, before Confederates in the Attic, you, you had familiarity with, with wars beside the Civil War. Did uh, Can you talk about that? Yeah, I was uh, trained as a journalist and um, ended up as a foreign correspondent um, for a number of years, uh, mostly in the Middle East, uh, later also in places like Bosnia and Africa and uh, Northern Ireland, um, spending a lot of my time covering conflicts and and wars, because that's uh, a lot of the news uh, from those parts of the world. Uh, So I did have um, some experience you know, with modern wars, uh, and that was part of what got me into Confederates in the Attic when I returned to the U.S. Uh, in the 1990s. I, I pulled that book off the shelf today, and I promise we'll talk John Brown uh, this afternoon, but I do want to ask you about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I pulled it off the shelf because I was going to say, well, what's it been like in the you know three or four years since this book came out? And I was shocked to see the date was 1998. Yeah. Uh, it's it's still it's incredibly fresh. Anyone who hasn't read it needs to uh, listening to the show needs to do so. You wrote in the book about contemporary attitudes toward the Civil War among reenactors as well as students and historians and historic preservationists and just people. <laughs> do you sense things have changed much in the the fifteen years since that came out as far as what Americans think about the war today? Um. You know, it's it's hard for me to say, in part because I no longer live in Virginia, so I'm a little more removed. I, I live now in Massachusetts, where Civil War feels a little more, uh, little more distant, uh, perhaps more interest here in the Revolutionary War. Um, but, you know, I, I um, uh, travel to the South still quite often, and I, I think the South uh, in particular um, really has changed, uh, in particular, simply the demographics. Uh, I think the uh, percentage of Southerners who now have a blood tie, a family tie to the Civil War, uh, is quite a bit less than it was certainly uh, a couple generations ago, but even 15 years ago. Uh, you obviously have uh, more Northerners like yourself living there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have uh, more Hispanics, Asians, uh, you know, etc. It's, um, it's a different society. Uh, and I think um, that the temperature perhaps has come down on some of the uh, racial issues that I talk about in the book that were, uh, I think, or hope, hotter in, in the mid-1990s than perhaps they are today. I, I hope that's true. It, it, it is hard to tell. I, our student paper here had a, the, the editorial columns today about 
the North versus South cultural divide. People have been calling each other Yankees and other names in the letters to the editor recently, and uh, it, it it certainly hasn't gone away. But right. uh, but I do hope you're right that the the temperature has come down a little bit. So, what brought you? Uh, did you do any any historical or Civil War writing between uh, 1998 and the John Brown book, or did you take a, a break from this? Yeah, I wrote. Uh, I, I did take a break. I went back overseas and I did a, a book about Captain Cook's adventures, uh, and then I came uh, back to the U.S. and did a somewhat similar book about uh, early explorers uh, of uh, what's now the U.S. Um, uh, but you know, from time to time, uh, I wrote a, a piece for the New Yorker about the Nat Turner Rebellion, which uh, isn't Civil War, but certainly connected in my view, um, and. You know, every once in a while I would uh, weigh in with uh, something on the Civil War, but not, not in a serious way and certainly not in book form. So what brought you to uh, John Brown as a topic? It was a few things. Partly it was um, uh, Geraldine, my wife, who we were talking about before. As she was researching March, uh, she found that uh, her protagonist, who was uh, based on uh, Bronson Alcott, uh, the father of Louisa May Alcott, had a lot of contact with a group called the Secret Six, who were uh, John Brown's uh, innermost core of supporters uh, in New England, uh, wealthy uh, uh, businessmen and intellectuals and transcendentalists. Uh, and she found them fascinating and and little known, and encouraged me to uh, write about them. Uh, and it was really through researching them that I I was brought back to uh, the story of John Brown. Uh, and the Secret Six are, are are certainly a piece of the story I ended up writing, but they're not uh, not the centerpiece. So that was that was one reason. Uh, I think another is that, like most uh, Civil War obsessives, I've. Uh, tended to focus uh, in the past on you know the 1861 to 65 period the great battles and leaders and i don't think we often enough sort of step back and say you know how is it that this war happened in the first place uh, how is it that americans who shared uh, for the most part a common language and religion and culture um, came to slaughter each other by the hundreds of thousands in the 1860s. And to me, um, John Brown and his raid are, are really a, a wonderfully dramatic uh, way of, of getting at that question. Well, that, that is really uh, uh, the $64 question for, for historians, how we, we got from heated, uh, vigorous political debate, such as we're all familiar with today, uh, to the mass slaughter, uh, which which hopefully we'll never be familiar with again, but uh, one has to wonder sometimes. The uh, Let me ask you to think about this question, which is to ask how, how you went about writing that, but before we get to that, we'll take a short break, have a few messages, and come back in just a moment. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Tony Horwitz, author of Midnight Rising, John Brown, uh, catch my breath, John Brown and the raid that sparked the Civil War. We'll be back in just a moment with more Civil War Talk Radio. Now 
you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take World Talk Radio on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Meet best-selling authors, find tantalizing new books, learn the latest healthy living tips, and be inspired to coach yourself to success on Star Style. Be the star you are every Thursday from 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific Time on World Talk Radio. The Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan, and her health hero daughter, Heather Brittany, fire up the airwaves with upbeat, positive, life-changing talk radio. It's the Power Hour on Star Style. Be the the star you are. Thursdays from 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Come play with us. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Where the world comes to listen and talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Tony Horwitz, author of Midnight Rising, John Brown, and the Raid that Sparked the Civil War. Also known to us all at Civil War Talk Radio is the author of Confederates in the Attic, which we talked a little bit about in our first segment. But we're discussing John Brown, the more recent book today. Uh, Tony, I want to ask you, how did you, what's your procedure for researching and writing a book like this? You mentioned you were trained as a journalist, so uh, as opposed, as, as an academic historian, I, I have an idea what, what, the person would do. Uh, how did you go about uh, this process? Yeah, well, this book was a, a departure for me. My earlier books, like Confederates in the Attic and, and others, uh, were really a mix of, of journalism and history and travel. Uh, I was focusing as much on the present as I was on the past and really looking at uh, often memory of the past uh, and how that uh, shapes us. Um, this time I, I decided to stay in the past. Uh, I felt the historical uh, story uh, was simply uh, so good and in some ways uh, so little known um, that I didn't want to uh, sort of detract from it by constantly cutting away to uh, my own uh, travels in the present. Uh, so really it's... Uh, it's a narrative history, and I went about it. I, I imagine the way you go about your books. I spent a lot of time in archives, um, and then also a lot of time at the places where the history happened. Uh, and perhaps that's still the journalist in me. Uh, I feel you can learn a lot by uh, going to the historical ground, uh, talking to the people there, park rangers and others. So I spent a lot of time in Harper's Ferry and surrounds, of course, but also Kansas, where uh, Brown first uh, really emerged as a uh, a militant abolitionist, uh, Ohio, where he spent much of his youth, uh, and other places that relate to the story. Uh, if, it, as you point out, the story is not as well known as, as such a dramatic story ought to be, but 
from a historian's viewpoint, a lot has been written about mm-hmm. John Brown. You know, Stephen Oates, among others, mm-hmm. have, have written well-known books. So, what did you have a strategy that made you think I'm going to break through to the public where others haven't? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Oates uh, and others, and I, I would say his is is one of the best. Um, but it's uh, basically a biography of John Brown, and most of the books that have been written uh, are biographies of Brown. And uh, the Harper's Ferry Raid is is sort of the last act of his uh, life story. I wanted to focus more on the raid itself, and not only on Brown, uh, but on his many accomplices, uh, and also on the people on the other side. One of the fascinating things to me about this story is it's, it's almost a preview of the Civil War, first in terms of uh, how the drama plays out uh, between Northerners and Southerners, but also simply the cast of characters. Uh, you have Robert E. Lee is, is present on the scene, uh, Stonewall Jackson appears, uh, John Wilkes Booth, Edmund Ruffin, uh, Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis become embroiled in this story, uh, many others. Um, so I really wanted to uh, make it more um, the biography of an event uh, rather than of, of Brown himself, although he is inevitably the protagonist of the story. And, and to understand it, you do have, obviously, to give some background uh, about him. Let's touch on that for a moment. The if, if people don't know that much about John Brown's raid today, they probably know less about his his uh, pre-Harper's Ferry activities, particularly his time in Kansas. Uh, what uh, Give us the thumbnail uh, version mm-hmm. of, of what Brown did in Kansas. Um, yeah, I, I mean, this uh, Harper's Ferry occurs at the end of a, a long career. He's 59 when he raids Harper's Ferry. Uh, so he's had a, a, a long life before that um, as, among other things, a failed businessman. He's a family man. Uh, he's a sort of a... American on the make who never never makes it, uh, but he's also all all through these difficult years uh, plotting uh, the overthrow of slavery, uh, and he first really emerges in Kansas uh, in the mid 1850s, and at that time, Kansas is really the front line in the fight over whether slavery will extend to new western territories. And when Brown arrives there in the fall of 1855, uh, pro-slavery forces really have the upper hand. Uh, and Brown and his sons and their allies uh, begin hitting back uh, hard uh, uh, with bloody attacks and even some uh, small open field battles. Uh, I, I think you can argue this is in some ways the beginning uh, of the Civil War. And this um, uh, really uh, uh, makes him a national figure uh, admired by uh, many abolitionists in the North and uh, uh, detested by many Southerners. Well, he becomes famous uh, for his, his actions there uh, at Pottawatomie Creek. He and his sons and, and others kill uh, some pro-slavery men. And then, then you, as you pointed out, he fights an open field battle at, at Blackjack. Uh, he and his, his followers engage in, in a small, but, but, but what really can only be called a battle. It's not a gang war. It's not a... Uh, uh, it's it's not just a, a skirmish of individuals. So he does become famous. How does he avoid going to jail at this point, having killed these people? Yeah, it, it is 
quite remarkable. I mean, one, it's a very chaotic, uh, kind of a guerrilla warfare situation in Kansas. Um, and news of exactly what happened at Potawatomi, for instance, um, it didn't come out till years later. Uh, and also the press at that time was uh, even more partisan than it is today. Uh, and uh, northern reporters, you know, sort of cast him as a hero, uh, or reporters from uh, anti-slavery newspapers. Uh, so, you know, it really depended what you were reading and, and which side you were on. Uh, there were warrants out uh, for his arrest at various times. Even President Buchanan later um, uh, puts a price on his head. Uh, but uh, by that point, the nation is so divided that uh, while he has to escape from Kansas, once he's in, um, you know, northern strongholds of uh, anti-slavery opinion, uh, you know, he, uh, uh, he has to be careful. He travels under an alias, but but uh, and no one's really going to grab him. Uh, that was interesting when, when the president says he wants to uh, arrest him. Uh, Brown's response is that he wants to arrest the president. Uh, yeah, he, uh, he uh, says, you know, well, I'll, I'll pay $10 to anyone who can, you know, uh, bring me James Buchanan. So he was uh, <laughs> uh, quite uh, derisive. And that was part of his mystique. He was this uh, very defiant uh, character at a time when uh, one, uh, almost all other, or most other abolitionists were staunch pacifists. Um, uh, you know, they were, uh, you know, very uh, uh, committed to nonviolence, which he was not. Uh, and also there was a feeling of, uh, among many anti-slavery nor uh, northerners, that uh, they were being bullied by the South. Uh, and here was someone who, you know, hit back hard, uh, wasn't uh, bullied, uh, and I think that was a, a great part of uh, his appeal. And he does find many supporters in, in the North. You, you mentioned the Secret Six got you started in this project. Uh, let us reveal, who are the Secret Six? <laughs> yeah, uh, Secret Six are um, uh, some names that uh, uh, people might have heard of, uh, leading ministers and, and transcendentalists, uh, uh, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, um, a, a wealthy businessman, uh, Stearns, uh, Garrett Smith, uh, one of the wealthiest men in New York. He runs uh, for president a couple times, a small party ticket. Uh, these, are, these are prominent uh, people. Uh, and there are many others who aren't formally part of this group uh, who are also lending support. Frederick Douglass, uh, Harriet Tubman, um, later uh, uh, Thoreau and Emerson become great champions of Brown. So I think uh, Americans today often have this image of Brown as this sort of, you know, wild-eyed, long-bearded, you know, kind of one of the, the crazed lone gunmen from our history. Uh, but in fact, he was part of a, of a much broader movement. And there were very, you know, uh, a number of people uh, involved in this, as well as the foot soldiers who ultimately uh, accompany him uh, to, Mar to Harper's Ferry. Yeah, I, that is really a critical point, I think, that, that the Secret Six are these elite, uh, in some cases wealthy, well-educated people, and they represent a bigger movement, and I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot to ask you to name all six, because I realized mm -hmm. I couldn't do that without looking up uh, myself, mm -hmm. but but you're absolutely right, they, they are uh, a segment, they represent a segment of northern uh, thinking that is strongly anti-slavery and willing to, to put their money where their mouth is in supporting Brown, not necessarily to 
uh, go with him and mm-hmm. uh, put themselves at risk, but they, they will certainly uh, endorse it. Mm-hmm. So does Brown tell them, I'm going to take your money and go to Harper's Ferry and start a slave rebellion? Yeah, he's, he's very cagey about his precise plans, and his plans are constantly evolving. Um, and I think there are a few of them, they later deny it, so it's, it's hard to prove, and some of them destroy their papers. Uh, uh, these guys, uh, except for Thomas Wentworth Higginson, I, I would say the, uh, uh, the Secret Six, they're not profiles in courage. When uh, uh, their role in supporting Brown is revealed after the raid, uh, most of them you know, run for Canada, and Garrett Smith uh, checks himself into an insane asylum to avoid uh, prosecution. Uh, so I, I'm not sure we can we can take their word for it when they claim they didn't know what he was up to. And in my view, uh, they did. Uh, if not the uh, precise tactical details, they knew that he wanted to go south um, uh, and wage uh, some sort of campaign of liberation. Uh, beyond the Secret Six, um, there might have been a, a few dozen people who knew uh, what he was up to, um, but many others who had given him money just for his crusade against slavery, and it was sort of no more specific than that. Yeah, now, Frederick Douglass knew, because Brown wanted him to go along, mm-hmm. and, and he was very open about it afterwards, that I don't want any part of this, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. leaving. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but others, as you point out, they didn't. They were not forthright about what was going on. So, what exactly did Brown plan to do at Harper's Ferry? Well, that also is is something we can't answer with certitude because he he gives different versions uh, to different people. Uh, I mean, his his military plan, such as it is, is to seize the armory at Harper's Ferry, then in Virginia, now West Virginia, which has a hundred thousand guns. Uh, hold this uh, this powerful position, and he believes that uh, slaves from the surrounding countryside will will flock to his banner. He even believes some whites will join him, working class whites in what was then a, a factory town, uh, and then that he will move uh, to the hills nearby and continue south in a, in a rolling campaign of liberation that will ultimately uh, topple uh, slavery. Uh, my own view is that uh, this is not a very realistic military plan uh, and that, uh, you know, Brown really has a plan B, which is that if this doesn't work as a military mission, um, that it will strike a blow that will shock the nation um, and so divide it that will bring on the great war that he believes is necessary to destroy slavery. Uh, and in that sense, uh, he ultimately succeeds. That, uh, you know, in retrospect, it, it looks certainly looks like that's what he must have had in mind because it does work so brilliantly. Uh, but uh, your book got me thinking about the the mountain guerrilla war plan. That if he it, when he goes into Harper's Ferry, clearly he's not going to hold the town against all comers for any length of time. Mm-hmm. But if they had simply seized some weapons and some slaves and then hightailed it out mm-hmm. and gone into the mountains, do you think there's any remote chance they could have uh, survived the season? Um, with the, 
Yeah, it's an interesting uh, question, and I think, um, yes, if he had gotten out of there more quickly, I think you could have had something that uh, wouldn't have succeeded in the way that he imagined, but might have been, uh, uh, you know, lasted uh, days or weeks or months, um, and uh, been, yes, some kind of uh, uh, mountain fight. Uh, but he took none of the steps to make that work. <laughs> Um, he, had, he was a man who had grand visions, but wasn't very good at executing them. This was true of his business career. Uh, he had tremendous uh, charisma um, and drive and vision, uh, but he really wasn't, uh, you know, a man for the details, and he wasn't uh, 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 really a, a military tactician. Um, so, for instance, uh, he doesn't alert slaves in the area of what he's up to. They have no way of knowing you know, what's going on in Harper's Ferry and why they should throw in uh, their lot with these people. Uh, he hasn't really prepared a, a proper mountain hideout that he can retreat to or move to. Um, so part of me thinks, uh, really, and, and others might disagree, but that this was, uh, uh, in part, a, a martyr mission. The historians talk a lot about contingency and, you know, the role of chance, and some people have pointed out that if if a train hadn't been coming along uh, just at the at the time the the men Brown's men were seizing the railroad bridge across the Potomac, uh, the train did not come along and then then continued on to give word that would have made the difference. But from your account, Brown and most of his men seized the armory, uh, hold themselves up in the the engine house there. And then just sort of wait for a day. Uh, yeah. So it really wouldn't have mattered if, if that train hadn't come along, another one would have sooner or later. Uh, well, there are a number of... No, it is a fascinating um, uh, study in, in contingency. Uh, many uh, uh, events along the way uh, could have gone differently. And I think most dramatically, um, it's, it's a miracle, really, that Brown was not killed at Harper's Ferry. Um, uh, he's, he's seized, wounded, uh, nearly killed, and I think he expected to die there. Certainly at that point, uh, he's surrounded by Robert E. Lee and uh, his Marine, the Marines he's commanding. Uh, Brown refuses to surrender. There's no way he's going to win this battle at this point. And he's really, you know, ready to die. And if he had died there on the floor of the engine house um, in October 1859, as many of his men did, I don't think we'd be talking about him today, um, because his triumph uh, really comes after that. It's one of the great ironies of this story, that Brown, who uh, uh, is, considers himself this great man of action and has contempt for mere sort of talkers and writers, fails in his actions, but triumphs through the power of his words uh, in court, in captivity, uh, in his letters, and, and finally in his bravery and going to the gallows. So that's uh, really the part of the story that elevated him um, to the figure that he became in, in Northern Imagination. Yeah, he was, he was, as you say, captured alive, and uh, he could have been executed the next day, they, they could have just held right. a drumhead trial. That's another contingency. If the Virginians uh, chose to put him on, on trial in a civilian court, um, they could have uh, treated him the way uh, 
we treat uh, prisoners in Guantanamo. I mean, they could have uh, tried them in a, some sort of military tribunal uh, or not tried them at all, just sort of uh, parked him out of sight. They could have, yeah, there could have been summary execution. He could have been killed by angry mobs in the streets that wanted to rip him to pieces. Uh, so it, it really is, um, uh, you know, uh, quite surprising that he survived. The you describe his actual execution takes place with with no spectators, with a double square of militia, in, including temporarily John Wilkes Booth, uh, surrounding the area. He has no chance. He's not allowed to make a final speech from the gallows. No final statement. Uh, it's as if they finally get the idea: we have to stop letting this guy uh, have access to to publicity. Uh, so he doesn't say anything uh, that gets out, except for one last written message on a scrap of paper he hands to to a guard but he has a whole month between the 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 raid and the execution in which he he does get letters and mm-hmm. and word out and and that that's when the opinion mm-hmm. when, when he begins to sway the opinion that that is so, so you're right had, had he not had that month of time we we probably wouldn't be talking about him right well, it's, it's it's quite remarkable he essentially turns uh uh, his trial into a press conference um, and into a, a forum and, and puts the South and slavery on trial uh, with such um, directness and eloquence uh, that he really galvanizes Northern opinion and also terrifies the South. Uh, not uh, so much his figure, he's in prison, but they see Southerner, white Southerners see the response in the North and they think, oh my gosh, these people are all closet John Browns. And and uh indeed the the as Emerson says he they they will reap the whirlwind uh that, mm-hmm. that uh, they have sown. Mm-hmm. Let's take another short break. We'll come back in just a moment, talk some more with Tony Horwitz. We're talking about his book Midnight Rising, John Brown and the Raid that Sparked the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Are you where you want to be in life? Are you experiencing the happiness that you're entitled to? How'd you like to improve your life and well-being? Take a weekly break to listen to Change Your Mind, Change Your Life with your hosts, Jim and Lynn Swearingen. You'll learn how hypnosis can truly help you rewrite the chapters of your life. You'll also learn to change perceptions of what hypnosis is and what it isn't. Be sure to listen every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. Almost everyone wants to be better, but how does one go about doing that? One thing that is making people better every week is tuning in to the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Tony Horwitz. He's the author of Midnight Rising, John Brown and the Raid that Sparked the Civil War, also Confederates in the Attic. Uh, and we've been talking about John Brown in our first two segments. Uh, Tony, I want to ask a question, perhaps a less comfortable one, but, but I want to push a little bit here. And... When I started reading your book, I was also reading the Journal of the Civil War Era, which uh, the North Carolina Press publishes uh, in conjunction with uh, Penn State's Civil War Center. And it had a review of current books, a review essay uh, by David Reynolds, who is a noted historian and literary critic. And are you familiar with this review that I'm mentioning? Uh, I'm not of this one. I've, uh, he reviewed my book, uh, elsewhere, and I've, um, sparred with him a bit on conferences and op-ed pages. So, sure, I know. Okay, so, I know so you, you know where he's coming from. Sure. Uh, uh, it, 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 the review is not particularly favorable, and when I first saw the name, I immediately put it down because I knew you and I would have this conversation, and I don't like to read reviews of books before talking with the author i'd like to reach my own conclusions and mm-hmm. and and uh but after i at least until i've read the book so i read your book and but i knew from just my, my eyes had strayed far enough into the review to see that that he took issue with some things you had, had said uh, so i knew i was going to come back and, and mm-hmm. finish reading what you've written and i know that he doesn't like some of what's here and then I and I thought, well, probably he doesn't uh, uh, like your sympathetic attitude toward John Brown, which I got from the book. Uh, so then, when I read the review, his review this morning, and discovered he doesn't like your antagonism toward John Brown, <laughs> I was I was quite surprised because that was not how I read the book. Um, mm-hmm. So let me ask you directly: uh, mm-hmm. Do you sympathize with this controversial character? Um, I didn't. I guess where I would differ from David Reynolds and and uh, a number of others in, in the Brown community. We communicate a lot, and we, we disagree on a number of things, but uh, I don't see it as uh, my role uh, in writing a book like this um, to love or hate John Brown, to be a, a cheerleader leader for him, or to, to demonize him. He, he's always been this tremendously polarizing figure, and that was... Uh, one reason I wanted to write the book, he seems to drive uh, even very good historians uh, just plain nuts. Um, and I wanted to uh, really try and take a, a, what I felt was a, a more dispassionate view, um, uh, tell the story as accurately uh, and vividly as I could, uh, and really leave it to the reader uh, to make their own judgments. Uh, so I think uh, where I have a difference with David Reynolds is he he really wants to see John Brown as a as a hero, uh, as do a number of other people, uh, and really, uh, in my view, wants to gloss over uh, some aspects of this story that that do make us uncomfortable. Uh, I mean, we do have to talk about uh, the violence, the bloodshed, the mistakes. Um, so I think that's um, what it comes down to uh, uh, more than anything is is how you see your role and if you see yourself uh, as uh, uh, an advocate for a figure you're writing about um, that's one thing and and there's a role for that it's just not the way uh, I see my role 
So, um, uh, yeah, he's, he's the only one who gave the book a bad review. Um, and uh, that's fair enough. If you write a book, you've uh, you got to take your lumps. You're, those are bound to happen. Sure. Well, but, but, but this raises a really interesting question, uh, and it comes up with the territory when you're writing about John Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, the, any historian will, will say, ideally, yes, I want to present... Uh, the past as best I can capture mm-hmm. it and, and not foist my opinions on the reader, let the, the, mm-hmm. the evidence speak for itself. But at the same time, there are some cases, if you're writing mm-hmm. about uh, uh, Gandhi, you're, you're not mm-hmm. going to make him out to be a moral monster. If you're writing about Hitler, you, you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I've, I've forgotten the name. It's somebody's, uh, uh, not a paradox, uh, uh, there's a maxim that, that if you have too much balance, sometimes that—that mm-hmm. uh, uh, that in itself is imbalance. If you simply oh, say, "Yeah," and of course, and I'm, yeah, I'm not suggesting that I don't make choices in what parts of the story I tell or the exactly. way I tell it. Of course, we all um, are interpreting the material. Um, we all are, are making uh, choices, and we see it in a certain way. Um, but what I don't do is um, uh, sort of step out from behind the curtain and say. Uh, this is what, you know, I feel you should feel about what John Brown did, because I find what's so fascinating about him is that uh, he does um, uh, raise these really complicated, knotty questions uh, that are still very relevant uh, about violence in America. Uh, is violence ever justified in the pursuit of justice? Um, uh, religious fundamentalism? Uh, race, obviously, all these questions that are still with us. And he raises them, I feel, in an uncomfortable way. And I think we should embrace that discomfort rather than uh, sort of retreating to one corner or the other and saying, you know, he's a, he's a, a martyr and a hero or he's a, you know, a homicidal maniac. Um, and, uh, you know, I think he, you know, it's, he doesn't fit any of those easy categories. Well, certainly he doesn't, just asking that question about him is important because it was not too many decades ago that he was often portrayed in, in, certainly in textbooks where you just have shorthand about uh, any figure as a madman, Mm -hmm. Uh, much like John Wilkes Booth Mm -hmm. used to be portrayed as a madman and now he's seen much more clearly as a a clear thinking political activist Mm -hmm. who used violence. Right. and likewise, John Brown was not crazy. Uh, uh, it certainly doesn't come out in your book as a crazy person, but as someone who who is using violence quite explicitly to uh, accomplish something. But let me ask you about those difficult questions. Then the you 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 suggest that you're making you're you're giving the reader the uncomfortable facts to to for the reader to wrestle with, mm-hmm. and. Yet, as when I finished the book, I th- I really thought this writer sympathizes with Brown in that I really haven't been confronted with the the negative side. Uh, clearly, the, this brought about the war, uh, and the war has the effect of ending slavery. So much for the better. Uh, but to the extent that it doesn't condemn Browns, it, it implies that sometimes it's okay to do these extra legal things. Uh, even violent ones, in order to accomplish a greater good, mm-hmm. which then leads to the question, doesn't that open the door for 
uh, violence in any cause, whether it's to to end slavery or to uh, uh, however one wants to view it politically, whether to uh, stop abortions, to well, stop a lot of people immigration. Explicitly um, invoked John Brown as an example in the 150 years since. Uh, exactly. At really at both extremes. Uh, Anarchists, uh, Black Panthers, and then in more uh, recent decades, um, uh, anti-abortion bombers and um, uh, Timothy McVeigh. So you know he he sets a very uh, complicated um, precedent, and uh, this is what I find interesting. You found my portrayal uh, somewhat sympathetic. Clearly, David Reynolds felt the opposite. So uh, I think. Um, I'd like to hear that. I like to hear that people <laughs> carry away or, or, or grapple with it. I hope it is is what they do. Um, and I, I, you know, I have to say my own feelings are are mixed and and unresolved. I I think we can all agree today, or I hope we would all agree, uh, he was on the right side of history in recognizing to a much greater degree than most Americans that uh, slavery was, you know, the great sin of this. Uh, of this nation, North and South, that had to be purged. Um, uh, but, you know, his means uh, should make us uncomfortable. Um, and I think it gets to really the larger question of, um, you know, was the Civil War inevitable? Was there a better way than the loss of, of so many lives, uh, the destruction of uh, such a large part of the country? Um, you know, what, was there another another way that's another you know big question uh but we we sanctify the civil war um and so i think it you know i i, I feel we we should ask the the uncomfortable questions uh, more often uh myself you know rather than coming to kind of feel good uh conclusions about history because as we all know uh, history is rarely that simple it, it it absolutely is, is not that simple, and and you're right. I, I would strongly endorse the idea we should not come to feel good conclusions, nor necessarily to feel bad conclusions, mm-hmm. uh, right. to, to simple conclusions. Mm-hmm. But this, I mean, it really was thought provoking. I mm-hmm. when you mentioned the idea of alternative uh, ways to end slavery or, or to resolve this, this this problem in American history, you. Your references to Abraham Lincoln, and, and I noted those because that's who I've mm-hmm. written about, were not entirely flattering, I'll say. Mm-hmm. At one point, you actually characterize him as a reluctant emancipator, which I, mm-hmm. I would take issue with on mm-hmm. historical grounds, but, mm-hmm. but that's not the purpose, not, not mm-hmm. our discussion topic today. Mm-hmm. But he would, rep- Lincoln in the, the moderate anti-slavery position represents a different way of going about bringing about the end of slavery and the and that was perhaps where i sensed the sympathy for john brown that at some point you say enough is enough this this mm-hmm. mealy-mouthed moderateness is never going to get get us anywhere we need a strong stand and brown mm-hmm. represents that mm-hmm. uh, another writer might have uh, mm-hmm. uh, on the opposite of, of of david reynolds might say that brown represents mm-hmm. the use of violence which is always wrong in these situations, even if it brings you out on the right side of history temporarily, mm-hmm. it sets a precedent of, right. of always settling questions the wrong way. 
Right. Um, well, I know it would, you know, be satisfying or more satisfying if I, you know, again, answered that very directly and said, this is absolutely <laughs> what I believe or not. And, you know, I struggled with all of this while, mm-hmm. you know, researching the book. I-, I would say on Lincoln, what interests me, first of all, is that he begins in really the conservative end of any slavery opinion and ends up quite a bit closer to Brown. Um, and that, to me, is what's so interesting and admirable about Lincoln, is that he had this um, capacity uh, for change um, and, and for growth. On the other hand, um, to present his moderate uh, views as a plausible way of ending slavery, uh, his original plan is, is um, really to just wait and let it die on its own. He says that might take a century, and then to resettle free blacks in Africa or Latin America because they can never live as equals to whites in this country. So I don't think he he really had a very realistic um, program himself uh, uh, for this problem, uh, nor was it one that today we would think was very enlightened, frankly. Uh, So, uh, again, I don't feel uh, it's necessary to embrace all one or the other. I just think we should look at all of them in as clear-eyed a way as we can. And that certainly is is, is accurate. I, I, would, I would also take issue with the both the, the can't live as equals mm-hmm. uh, point. He does literally say he doesn't see how it can be done. But not because they're unequal, but because uh, of right, really because of white people, because of prejudice. Mm-hmm. And to that, when I when someone quotes that, or when I quote mm-hmm. that in a talk, I'll often point out that it's it's mm-hmm. to our shame, not his, that we haven't proven him wrong yet. We still haven't right. found a way to uh, to truly eradicate uh, inequality in our society. Well, so, I mean, this is what makes Lincoln endlessly fascinating. Is, is it is hard to know at times. <laughs> what he means he's, uh, he's he's playing several games at once and he's That's true. Uh, speaking yes. to his he audience was... and you know so he is very clever in that way he um he allows us and people then obviously to to read different things into him so i think that's a very interesting uh subject of of discussion and debate what you know what really were his beliefs but what strikes me is that clearly they changed um in the course of the civil war and uh i think brown or you know uh his reflections on brown uh, perhaps had uh something to do with that I, I don't think there's any any question about that. Well, Tony, I'm sorry to say we mm-hmm. have come already to the end of our uh, allotted time to talk about this. It always happens too fast, but especially this week, I, I enjoyed the book and uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, listeners, if you haven't uh, read anything on John Brown, this book will take you into a fascinating world. It's Midnight Rising, John Brown and the Raid that Sparked the Civil War. Uh, Tony, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. It was great. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network.